This is Health Dose, a conversational podcast that focuses on issues surrounding your health. I'm Jerry O'Donnell, and on today's episode of Health Dose, we're joined by Dr. Andy Bogoshevsky. Dr. Bogoshevsky is an interventional cardiologist and a member of MidMichigan's multidisciplinary team of structural heart specialists. This team includes cardiologists, cardiovascular surgeons, interventional cardiologists, and cardiac imaging specialists. Dr. Bogoshevsky is in our studio today to talk about aortic stenosis symptoms and diagnosis techniques, as well as the latest advancements in treatment, including transcatheter aortic valve replacement, also referred to as TAVR. Health Dose asked Dr. Bogoshevsky, what is aortic stenosis? So aortic stenosis is a kind of a condition of one of the heart valves inside of the heart. As you can, you may remember from school, there, there are four heart valves. And uh, what I consider the aortic valve is the, is the actual gatekeeper of the heart to allow blood from the heart out into the rest of the body. So hence the gatekeeper. So it's the last stop before it goes back to my body. That's correct. And so, you know, there's a set of, you know, people call them doors, flappers, I call them valves. You know, when the heart squeezes, it opens up a set of doors or these heart valves and allows the blood flow to get to the rest of the body. And over time, whether, you know, you're lucky to be alive long enough, hence if you live long enough, these valves will harden over time. And this valve or these doors start to open less and less. And so that the heart, as it squeezes, gradually those doors don't open, so it starts to create back pressure. And that heart starts to feel like, ooh, I'm feeling a little resistance, like the doors aren't opening very well, I've got to push harder. You know, initially the size of that hole is like a garden hose, then maybe a Sharpie marker, and then ultimately the size of a straw. And then so, you know, I always tell the patients to say that, you know, imagine you breathing out through a straw when you were a kid. You know, we all kind of played with this, and, uh, and it's hard. You know, you can, you can do it. You can blow out that air through that small straw, but, boy, it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. And so imagine the heart muscle having to do that. Every time it squeezes, it has to shoot that blood through a hole the size of a straw. And uh, you can imagine it, the heart's going to struggle. Now, luckily, this happens very gradually. It basically allows the heart some time to adapt, get thicker, get stronger, and to be able to mount that amount of power to pump that blood through that smaller hole to still allow you to function normally. So that's kind of what aortic valve stenosis is, is that narrowing of that opening to allow the heart to pump the blood you need uh, to its destination. Does it get to a point where your heart weakens because it's working so hard? So it can. And so those are kind of like the grand finales of this condition to where it will essentially bring out the symptoms that we're probably going to talk about. And what, what, yeah, what are the symptoms? How would I know if I'm having a problem? Absolutely. So it, again, because it's a gradual process and it happens more so in the elderly, that people start feeling a little more fatigued, a little more short of breath, for instance, You know, if you are active enough, you will start noticing that, hey, when I went out with my partner to go dance, it was a little harder that weekend. Mm -hmm. And or, you know, when I see patients go into the mailbox or when they're active in the doing yard work, they will notice that this year is rougher than last year was. So shortness of breath, fatigue, if it starts getting quite more severe, dizziness, even passing out in its more extreme case, and then the ultimate, which is congestive heart failure, to where that muscle just weakens, and again, shortness of breath. Mm. And even when you have that little straw of an opening, if you're not doing anything, a lot of time you'll be fine. 
and it's only with exertion. When that body starts to burn oxygen and that heart is called to duty to try to provide you the blood flow you need, it can pump all it wants to, but it just can't get it out through that hole fast enough right. to the body so the body runs out of steam and you just get fatigued and you have to stop and rest. And the reason for the shortness of breath is you're literally not getting oxygenated blood to parts of your body? One can think of it that way, but a lot of times when we say that the heart muscle is pumping this fresh oxygenated blood, well, that fresh oxygenated blood is coming from the lungs. And so if the chamber is having problems getting that blood flow out, that fresh blood trying to come into the heart is met with resistance in the sense that the heart never emptied as well as it could, so there's back pressure. The bucket's full, but the water's trying to come in, and it's just too full, and so it starts to back up. Pressure starts to back up into the lungs, and uh, shortness of breath can occur. Is this just related to age, or are there other environmental factors that might be in play? So, yeah, this was my comment on, you know, either it could be lucky or unlucky. And so the lucky aspect is that you lived long enough. And so you've been around long enough, enjoyed life and family and uh, whatever comes with it. And then, but gradually it sneaks up on you. So this is kind of like this called senile calcific aortic valve stenosis. Less luckier things like infections, for instance, rheumatic fever, which is an infection early in age, which we sometimes hear or about that, yes, I was sick for a week or I was out of school for a month. I remember something like that because it, in childhood. because rheumatic fever, you know, it does not happen in this side of the, of the world as often as it used to. So therefore, we don't, we see it much less. But that valve kind of becomes irritated and inflamed. And over time, it just, it hardens, thickens, and then it comes, it causes aortic valve stenosis. And of course, you know, cancer patients that may have had radiation to the chest, which can start this inflammatory process of the valves and other portions of the heart. And so those are the kind of like the less luckier conditions. And of course, being born congenitally with two leaflets, for instance, instead of three. So normally this valve is a tricuspid or three leaflet valve. But if you are born with two leaflets, that valve just does the work of three, so it just wears out sooner. So this is where we do see these patients come in at the, you know, in the ages of 50, early 60s, and that is kind of young as opposed to the typical 70s, 80s of the aging valve. So absent cancer, congenital, or some kind of infection in childhood, it's really a matter of aging. Correct. It's going to happen That's to you. That's the predominant. Eventually. And you know, even though that is the more common way, we see 90-year-olds with valves that are just fine. So mm -hmm. I don't think we know it all, mm -hmm. but that seems to be the predominant association is the aging portion of it. So when somebody presents to you with aortic stenosis, what's the treatment? What do you do? So it depends where you enter into that diagnosis. So for instance, typically your doctor or just someone will tell you, hey, has anybody told you you had a murmur? And, you know, I hear multiple stories. People say, oh, I've had a murmur all my life. You know, I was going into the military. They told me I had a murmur. Or I was a kid and I had a murmur. And so at that age, you know, when I see someone at, uh, you know, let's say the age of 80 and they tell me they've had a murmur, I say, well, you may have had a murmur, but this is not the murmur you had then. Mm -hmm. This is a different mm -hmm. murmur. That murmur you probably outgrew, didn't see a doctor in your 20s, 30s, 40s. Then you start entering into that 50s where, oh, I better start seeing a doctor. And he tells me I have a murmur. And I tell him, yeah, I've had one since I was a kid. Mm, probably not. It, it's through the beginnings of it. And then so the murmur starts to show up. And then it's likely in the early stages. So you might start hearing a term called aortic sclerosis. 
you know, everybody's got access to their health information now. They may see a report on their echocardiogram and ultrasound, and it says aortic sclerosis. Well, that's just trying to tell you that the valve is not narrowed yet, but it's hardening, mm-hmm. and it can create turbulence. Because when that valve tries to open, when that heart squeezes, and the doors don't open all the way, mm-hmm. there's turbulence. And that turbulence, because of velocity changes or speed across that valve, I can hear that. We can hear that uh, with a stethoscope, for instance. And when it's bad enough, you can sometimes even hear these things when your stethoscope is not even on the chest. But that's the extreme side of it. So anyway, so that aortic sclerosis, it's just the beginnings. Just kind of say, ooh, okay, you're starting to have a murmur. You know, we did an ultrasound, let's say, and it's only aortic sclerosis. So then as time lapses, you know, there's a progressive natural history of this valve. And then you go mild aortic stenosis, moderate aortic stenosis, and of course, the severe aspect. So the treatment depends on where you enter at the time of diagnosis. So if you're mild or moderate, for the most part, we don't change things around because there's no, you know, I tell patients, there's no Drano I can give you to to, to loosen things right. up, no WD-40 to loosen these leaflets up. They're just going to progress, unfortunately. And that just alarms us to maybe more frequent surveillance so we can catch it upon its arrival into the severe state. And then, of course, the severe aspect is that where we really focus in on because that's where we have found that is associated with slowing you down to some degree. And by the way, the moderate aortic valve stenosis, there are tr- clinical trials right now ongoing to assess whether earlier intervention may make a difference. So now that we talk about entering into the severe state, it is about how do we treat that. And so it depends, uh, symptom-wise. And so there are patients that have severe aortic valve stenosis but tell you, Doc, I exercise. Mm-hmm. I, I work out. I go hunting. I play bowl, I go bowling. I'm dancing. I tell you, I have no symptoms. At those patients, if that is truly real and you believe that they are as active as they say they are, you leave them alone. And then still close surveillance can happen. There are some clinical trials that may say early intervention in the surgical world may be the right thing to do. But for right now, we are still truly keeping really close eye on the so-called asymptomatic patients, meaning without symptoms. Sometimes we may put them on a treadmill to kind of say, maybe not a, str- not, a st- yeah, or not, not a stress test. When people think of stress tests, they think of blockages or, or coronary artery disease. I'm talking about a valve stress test and to see whether maybe symptoms will arrive sooner than you think. Mm-hmm. And so, because we have these metabolic kind of or functional assessment, and if you're petering out at three minutes on a treadmill, excuse me, that's not normal. You should not peter out that quickly, barring some being out of shape, orthopedic issues or something like that. Right. So point is, okay, I got to come back to your question. How do we treat this? So once we have symptoms, family members always join in these conversations, say, yeah, mom, dad, grandpa, whoever, they've been slowing down. And then, you know, the, the patient says, yeah, you're right. Yeah, mm-hmm. Something's been slowing. Last year was totally different than this year because it's subtle. These things are, it's not a boom, you've fallen off the cliff unless you're really at the end stage of it. There's so subtle changes that sometimes people just don't think about it. Point being is that once you arrive with symptoms, you have severe aortic valve stenosis, we've got to do something about this. This valve, unfortunately, is fatal if left untreated. So through clinical trials, the natural history of this valve and learning about it, we have learned you have essentially a coin toss chance of survival at about two years, two to three years. And so nobody likes those odds. If I tell you right now at the age of, say, 65, don't know how old you are, but I tell you you have two years to live with a coin toss 
chance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think you'd like those odds. No. You know what I mean? And so well, planning starts needs to be uh, put into motion. Because I told you there's no WD-40 or Drano I can give you to to unclog this thing. You got to replace it. You got to change the valve because it's a mechanical problem. It's a fixed non-opening leaflet or doors, and it's just got to be changed out. Historically, for decades and decades, we have had the treatment being open-heart surgery. Now, by the way, it depends on how sick you are. When are you entering into this state of severe aortic stenosis? You could be 95. And so, as you can imagine, some treatments are not as good options for patients. Because there may be other things going on with your body at 95. That's correct. Or even 75. You know, you have patients with bad lungs bad kidneys, you know, on on dialysis, whatever package you bring at the time of when you are diagnosed with the condition may dictate your treatment. And so historically, open heart surgery was the only way. But if you brought a bad package with you, Mm -hmm. the surgeon may say, I'm sorry, uh, you're going to die on this table. You have the unenviable task of deciding whether or not these comorbidity issues are going to give you a good outcome or a bad outcome. That is true. It's kind of what life brings you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And what cards were you dealt? And so, again, replacing this valve was the way to go. Tried and true, great outcomes, open heart surgery, remove the valve, suture a new valve in, close shop, recovery. So rehabilitation, five, six weeks, and you're kind of back to work, back to wherever you are in your life span. So exercise, whatever enjoying back to life. Now, though, with an altered mortality timeline. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your timeline was kind of set by this genetically, first of all, then whatever life brings you, Mm -hmm. you know, diabetes, uh, heart attacks, aortic valve stenosis, or other valvular problems, by the way. So then your timeline gets skewed, it gets shifted. So your mortality or death is now threatened to come earlier than maybe genetically predisposed or thought to take place. So by replacing that valve, you somewhat get put back onto your timeline. You know, whatever that kind of was, Mm -hmm. barring any unforeseen problems. So open heart surgery was the way to go. But as we just talked about, as you mentioned, the comorbidities. If your comorbidities tell a surgeon you're going to do bad with surgery, unfortunately, you know, we shook hands and we said, I'm sorry, you know, uh, you're too high risk for open heart surgery. I will deal the best, I'll give you the best treatment we can, you know, making sure you're out of congestive heart failure, your breathing is the best. Sometimes I may send you to my cardiology colleagues and they balloon the valve and buy us a little time to make you feel comfortable and unfortunately, you're going to likely pass from this condition. Mm -hmm. And so as time lapsed, you know, in history of of medicine that we always try to evolve, right? So this is like the same story of of coronary stents. You know, everybody knows a stent or balloon angioplasty for blockages or coronary artery disease. Well, open heart surgery was the only way to do it until some guys decided to stick a balloon in somebody's heart and open it up and it, it worked. And now the treatment has shifted. So similarly with this, to try to accept the fact that there's nothing else I can do for you, uh, you know, I'm sorry, was a little bit unacceptable, and so we continue to evolve. So some very bright person decided to say this is unacceptable, and so let me see if I can fix this maybe in a less invasive way. And so this is a concept of a minimally invasive valve. Now, by the way, there are surgical minimally invasive valves. You don't have to crack the chest down the middle. 
you can go off to the side. So again, there's multiple options in treatment of that. So this thing called TAVR, which is an acronym, you know, the AVR of this four-letter acronym is aortic valve replacement. And the first letter is the T is transcatheter. So TAVR is its acronym, and it's out in the community. People may have heard this one way or another. And this is compared to SAVR, which is surgical aortic valve replacement. So when I meet patients, I throw out these acronyms right off the gate because they're going to hear it, they're going to read about it in our folders that we give them. So it's TAVR versus SAVR when we see patients. Mm -hmm. So this TAVR business is now the minimally invasive, non-open chest way of fixing this valve. Because the issue of this aortic valve replacement was the surgery. It was the opening of the chest, was putting people on artificial heart pumps during the time when they have to stop the heart to be able to get this valve replaced. And so the minimally invasive portion goes, well, let's not open the chest. How about let's not put them on an artificial heart pump mm -hmm. and get this valve done, and how can we do this? Well, so this minimally invasive valve is basically gone through the groins. If you have listeners or, or, or I have patients that have had heart procedures called heart catheterizations where, again, coronary artery disease, an angiogram is being look, done to do and uh, to look for coronary disease, it's gone through the groins. You know, mostly it's true we do it through the wrist now, but still the groin is an option to do that. Well, that's the same we do this heart TAVR procedure as basically it's a... Procedure lasts about an hour, an hour, you know, hour, hour and a half, depending on any difficulties of getting the valve to its destination. But more or less, we put people under sedation. Now we try not to do under full general anesthesia. Because sometimes that's the most risky part of a surgery. Yeah, so you're right. So people do not sometimes fare well with general anesthesia. Their recovery is a little more prolonged, hospitalizations prolonged, what have you. So now we have, over time, in the evolution of this valve, we've found that people can get this valve done with essentially like very twilight sedation. Mm -hmm. Now, so what we do at MidMichigan Health is we do kind of a uh, in-between. It's not to where I'm going to nudge you and wake you, but you're also not under full that kind of sedation. So you're right in between. Point being is that, you know, without being on a, a breathing machine, we can get this procedure done, basically go through the groin, place some IVs, we are able to place basically wires, kind of, uh, you know, a hanger thickness of a wire, safely, of course, across that aortic valve. Because if you can imagine, when we go in through that groin, we head backwards up and through the vasculature, which always starts at the heart. So we can always backtrack it. We can go across that valve and, um, and deploy a valve of our own through a balloon and or a self-expanding valve, which takes place of your diseased valve. So through surgery, we remove the valve and place a new valve. So this TAVR business, we actually leave your valve intact. We in fact go inside of it. And when our balloon or our self-expanding valve expands, it pins your own valve leaflets up against the wall while the new valve deploys. And when that balloon comes down, because I then deflated a new set of valves, drop down and start functioning instantly as a new set of doors, flappers, or valve leaflets, whatever. And now when that heart takes its next beat, that straw just became a garden hose. And as you can imagine, or a straw versus a snorkel, hmm. a quite a different feeling for that heart muscle. It's so got it's gotta feel, while the onset of stenosis might be slow, 
when a person comes out of that procedure, they've got to feel like a million bucks. Oh my goodness, I'll tell you, you know, bar, you know, you know, obviously there's they're sedated, so they don't. But if the heart could talk, mm-hmm. boy, would it see uh, give you a sigh of relief. Right. Oh my gosh, can I breathe so much better? Right. So not that the heart says that, but if it could, that's probably what it would say. But then what happens is, you know, because these patients are on ventilators, they wake up essentially within the next half hour, they're already awakened. And at that night, they're already up to a chair. You know, they're already, typically they know something is different. Mm -hmm. They have not done the same walk that they do at home to the mailbox or so, but they just tell you, I can take a deeper breath. Something is different. Right. And they know it. And then the next day, typically, we already have them up and at it, walking. I have had people cry just walking around the circle of the hallways to say, I have not done that in years. Yeah. And so it's amazing. I mean, yeah. it gives me goosebumps talking mm-hmm. about it because you see it. You know, there's not many conditions where you see this kind of an instant mm, feeling much, much better than they used to. And then they realize this has been happening for so many years. I didn't even realize this was what I could have been. Right. I just thought it was aging. Tell me about the MidMichigan Health Heart Valve Clinic and the services that you provide that go beyond this TAVER procedure. So, you know, the the shift that has taken place in the world of of cardiac care has been this kind of a unity. So, you know, traditionally, you know, each specialty is its own thing. Heart docs, cardiologists do this, heart surgeons do that. We don't exactly do the same thing. And so this was kind of a outside of, you know, where, you know, even when coronary artery bypass surgery and stents came around, we're treating the same thing, but we were doing it so differently, we weren't necessarily on the same page sometimes. You know, we just weren't uh, collegial. It's like, you know, when I do stents, I say, gosh, you know, we know who probably should have surgery, so we send them to surgeons, they do the job, and then when they're done, they kind of bring, send them back to us for long-term management. Well, when aortic valve stenosis and this whole thing of where surgery was the only way to do it, and now you're blending people that have done this for decades with people that have done groin procedures for decades. And now you're trying to merge two specialties to get you the best outcomes, right? So this heart team concept came around to whereas for the better good of the patient, let's get you two specialists in one room. And not even two, just there's imaging specialists, anesthesiologists, nursing staff that take care of these patients and, and troubleshoot, uh, telephone calls, etc. So when you get these people in the same room, you have a heart team. So now everyone's input is now put into one room and you're like, and you've, uh, you hash it out. Why should you get TAVR or why should you get SAVR? Mm-hmm. You know, as those acronyms I mentioned earlier. And so this heart team meeting is now spreading, you know, nationwide and of course and worldwide, but the U.S. really tries to embrace this concept is because overall it's for the better care of the patient. So we have embraced that. And so this heart valve clinic now is a resource for to funnel patients with this condition. And in our institution, you know, because aortic valve has kind of been around the treatment of this condition has had the best headway and progressive improvement and best outcomes. That's where the main focus were, uh, was and, uh, and matured. There are other valves behind us, but still the aortic valve is the primary one right now because it's the most matured. The valve clinic then allows patients to come in for evaluation, whether it's a murmur evaluation, whether already diagnosed with severe aortic valve stenosis, 
or primary care providers just don't know. It gives them of resources to be able to come and meet with a cardiologist and discuss this condition. And not only to discuss the treatment or the valve or what have you, it's to more or less understand it, you know, to have the resources of, of how to manage it, how to surveillance it for the long haul if you're not ready for the treatment because it has not affected you yet, what to look forward to in time and when to maybe find that window of opportunity to safely intervene on this before the heart starts to weaken, for instance. So this is like a collaborative, holistic approach to heart health and taking care of patients with heart conditions, even down to the nutrition services at the clinic. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we get these patients, you know, they, they come already usually with some other comorbid case, you know, and so, you know, congestive heart failure, for instance, hypertension and diabetes. And so nutritional aspects of treating these conditions, which could potentially slow down the progression of that aortic valve stenosis, for instance. So that's where you are able to speak with nursing staff to, to give you discussion towards low-salt diets, for instance. Better diabetic control. Although primary care docs do wonderful work, they have diabetic teachings, etc., we're able to also provide just to kind of reinforce the importance of managing these comorbidities because they will reflect on what your options may be in the future. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind, you know, even though these comorbidities prevented people from getting open-heart surgery. Initially, in the birth of this TAVR business, is that it was essentially given to patients that had no surgical options. This is the case where the surgeon says, I'm sorry. I got uh, nothing. I got nothing for you. And so that's when the FDA, of course, after clinical trials to see what nothing versus TAVR did, the FDA stops, whoa, uh, people are living clearly longer with TAVR. It is no longer ethical to say, I've got nothing for you, right. unless we're talking end of life. And then they said, well, if it works so well for these people, what about the patients that are not so gravely ill? What if you are moderate risk? So in other words, a surgeon will have no problem taking you to surgery. What about those people? How does TAVR do? Well, we put those to clinical trials. And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, people are doing as good, if not better, mm -hmm. than open heart surgery. And you're recovering so much faster. Oh my goodness, this works. The FDA comes out and says, oh, you guys proved this does work. It's approved. So now this is where I need you guys to get into a room and decide what's best for each patient. So then we start pushing the envelope, say, wait, why just moderate risk? What about just mild risk, just low risk? Maybe all comers. You know, if you just got aortic valve stenosis, maybe TAVR is the way for you. And so clinical trials went on and saying, oh boy, there's no difference in survival. There is no really difference in major problems with the exception it's less invasive you're out of and the house that's always good and you know any nobody wants open heart surgery mm -hmm. but of course sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes it may be not necessary and so this is the evolution of the progress so now we're at a point where holy smoke taver may be an option for for everybody but again this is where the heart team comes in because there are still unanswered questions with taver it's very young compared to the open heart surgical world so we're still learning the whole question always comes up, durability. You know, the aortic valve of the open heart, we kind of know where, how long it's going to last when I talk to you and tell you, uh, hey, you're going to have a good 10 years, you know, 8 to 12, 15 years maybe with an open heart valve. With the TAVR valve, we weren't able to tell you that for a long time because why? Who was getting it was the very sick people. So right. they were dying from non-valve-related issues because 
for some reason, they were high risk enough to where the open heart surgeon said, you can't have open heart. You were sick. You had comorbidities mm -hmm. and you were dying from other reasons. So people were dying with intact valves, but we lost that data. We don't know how long those valves were going to last. So as the years went by and the moderate risk people were being tested, the low risk people are being tested. Now we got to wait because these people are alive. Right. Now the data is starting to flow in saying, oh my gosh, you're you know, you're five years out and there's no difference between the valves. Eight-year data is going to be coming out soon. And there have been no red flags saying that the TAVR valve is going to work any less than the surgical valve. So that's why we haven't just said TAVR everybody. It, it doesn't work like that. We, we still got to be cautious. Anytime, some, anytime something wonderful, game-changing shows up, uh, be it, cautious, test it, test it. you know, if it works wonderful, but keep your eyes and ears open. Mm -hmm. We got to make sure that if we're going to provide this to the world in masses unrestrictedly, it better be the best thing around. And because we always want the best of the best for our patients to allow them the longevity they deserve to enjoy life to the best of their ability. And so um, that's the, still the unanswered. We're still working through that. But now we are in the gamut of low risk or high risk. TAVR is an option. And so this heart team meeting and concept still involves the low-risk people, the high-risk people, because there are some people that cannot have TAVR, by the way. As, as sexy as it sounds mm -hmm. and as attractive as it is for the minimally invasive route, once you have the disease, you may not be a candidate. So it's not the, I mean, the end-all. I mean, I sometimes have to have the unfortunate discussion to say, I'm sorry, you, you are not a TAVR candidate. You're going to have to have open-heart surgery. As you can imagine, from a customer perspective, the person says, I don't want open heart. I, right. I want TAVR. Right. You know, the ads say TAVR is available. I want TAVR. And I tell you, I'm sorry. If I do TAVR on you, you have a higher risk of dying. Right. You know, I can plug up a coronary artery if it's just genetically too low. I have reasons why TAVR is not for you. And so, you know, you know, we talked about the groins. You know, people have blockages too, you know, peripheral arterial disease. So there's alternative access things. You know, you can go through actually a carotid artery. You can go through the left arm. You know, you can split the ribs and open it. I mean, so there's many ways of doing it, but clearly the best is through the groin. So there's sometimes I have to tell a patient, I'm sorry, you're not a TAVR candidate. As much as I would love to do it for you, because I know it's a good thing, it's not the right treatment for you. And this is where that heart team comes in. You, you take some bias out of the equation. Just because I do TAVR doesn't mean you should have TAVR. Mm -hmm. As much as I love doing it, you may not be the candidate, the right person for it. And you should have open heart surgery. And then hopefully with the appropriate discussion and just telling you why, we can both agree a live patient is better than a dead TAVR patient. So I just want you alive. And the best treatment is based on this heart team approach, which we hash it out. And uh, we give you the best treatment for you. That is interventional cardiologist and member of MidMichigan's multidisciplinary team of structural heart specialists, Dr. Andy Bogashevsky. Of course, if you have health concerns, the best place to start is your primary care provider. If you need help finding a primary care provider, go to midmichigan.org slash doctors. And if you'd like more information about MidMichigan's heart valve clinic and the TAVR procedure, go to midmichigan.org slash heart valve clinic. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jerry O'Donnell. Join us again soon for another edition of Health Dose.